Welcome everyone to the third of the series of interviews with Craig Milne, who's the uh, Executive Director of the Australian Productivity Council. And in this uh, podcast, I'm talking to Craig about the destruction of Australian manufacturing. My name's Chris McCormack, and uh, welcome to the program, Craig. Good to be here, Chris. Now, firstly, I'd like to uh, talk about the peak in Australian manufacturing. When that was in as a in terms of percentage of GDP from manufacturing, and what did this higher level of manufacturing at the time mean for the unemployment rate and taxes, standards of living, and domestic self-sufficiency? Gosh, look, I I can't think of the exact footnote, but I recall reading once that it was in 1957, and it was 29.7 percent of GDP, and it, it it held around that level for into the 60s, uh, it, it, it got to such a high point after a terrific uh, effort of industrial expansion during World War II when, when uh, Australia felt it was in very real uh, danger of a, a Japanese invasion at the time and was left without much in the way of military capacity. And thanks to various far-sighted people like Essendon and Lewis, we, we had the, the skeleton of an industrial a system in place which we could we could build up to provide for our needs in World War Two, and the the momentum of that carried well into the 1950s and established lots of things for us. Look, um, it meant that unemployment was genuinely one percent. Uh, I think unemployment today is officially five point something, but most people don't accept that. They think it's two or three times that. Um, and uh, government as a share of GDP was taking about 18% in the middle 60s, I recall. There's a thing on the uh, that uh, tax review that came out some years ago under the Gillard government, which has a very interesting history of the taxation rates uh, in Australia. And if you look at that, it shows tax at about 18% of GDP, state and federal, in the mid-60s. It's about double that now. Hmm. And, and, and also in terms of um, our standards of living and, and domestic self-sufficiency, what did the high um, manufacturing mean in terms of, of those? Well, Australia was probably a fairly autarkic uh, country in those days. We, we made most most of what we needed. We didn't make everything, but we made most of it. I mean, if you could go to look at, uh, you know, garments, we'd make not only the, the garments themselves, we'd make all, we'd produce all of the fibres and process them, wool would be uh, scoured and carted and woven, Australian fabrics, all of the supplier firms in the clothing industry were, were here locally, we made all of the components, buttons and zip fasters and linings, and labels, all of these things were, were clustered around places like Melbourne producing all of our needs. We had appliances, if you filled your house with domestic goods in uh, in the 1950s or 60s, you'd have had a washing machine from Wilkins Service, a, a television from AWA Radiola or Astor or Chrysler. You'd have had Chemthorne would provide the lighting. You'd have any of a dozen furniture companies would provide all of the lounge suites and dining tables. Everything, carpets, pretty much everything in your house uh, would have come from an Australian uh, producer somewhere. Uh, virtually everything in the shops were. So it was a very, very self-sufficient uh, very, very self-sufficient country. There are things we didn't make. Obviously, we didn't make civilian airliners, but we did have an aircraft industry and it, it, made, it made aircraft engines and airframes and quite a lot of things. They were very self-sufficient indeed. And I guess today, you know, we talk about our rising standard of living, but most of that is on, on borrowed money. I think we're the highest, if not the 
one of the highest um, private levels of uh, um, debt to GDP in the world. So you know, I guess in those days it was a little bit different. The standard of living was real as opposed to an illusionary one these days. Well, it was. We were obviously one of the richest countries in the world, and we had look, we have been for a very long time. Australia, Australia was, in fact, one of the reasons convict transportation failed was Australia was becoming a very prosperous country in the 19th century, and it, it lost all of its horrors as a place to send your your recalcitrant criminal classes. It was actually quite a quite a desirable destination. So, I mean, we've always been. A rich country. A lot of people would argue we were declining in the 20th century, and the free traders and economic liberals ascribe that to protectionism. They say that was costing us. I, I don't really buy that. We're we, look. We we might have uh, a higher standard of living today in some ways. In the, but I'd put them most of that down to technological changes. You know, like a television costs much less today than it used to. I, I can remember my father buying his first TV set in about 1957, and it was 220 guineas. I mean, he, he was a, that's a lot of money. He was a senior constable of police at that, at that time and he was earning about 20 pounds a week. So it was about 12 or 14 weeks wages to buy a TV set for a middle class salary. It, it wouldn't be that today, but, but that's down to technological improvements really, I think, rather than the benefits of free trade and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and when did manufacturing as a percentage of GDP really start to decline and why was that? Well, the, the main the main problem was, and, and interestingly, you know, a contributor to Newsweekly, of course, is Colin Teese, who very well explains how how the tariff system worked in Australia, the protective tariff system. That I think probably the issue was that when the Japanese, the, the tariffs we used to levy were not too serious as a, as a deterrent to competition from the US or Britain or. Europe. But once the Japanese started coming into the market with massively lower cost of labour and grossly undervalued currencies and all of the arsenal of industrial policies that the Asian mercantilist countries, starting with Japan, but going through all of them really have, have successively used, um, the the tariffs you would have needed to be competitive against that got, got higher and higher. Um, I think that was uh, and that gave strength to the people who never really liked tariffs much anyway. There's always a residual opposition to tariffs uh, in Australia. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it, gave, it gave them strength and the tariffs started to come down in 1973, of course, with the Whitlam cuts across the board, plus currency revaluations. Uh, and gradually industry started to collapse under much uh, better uh, Asian competition, I think. And you talked about our structural problems um, that needed to be resolved. What were they and, and why weren't those structural problems resolved? Okay, well, the, 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 the three things to always bear in mind with Australia is firstly, a high incomes country. It's not, not just wages. Wages set the pattern of that. People blame trade unions for us. And, you know, trade unions can be blamed for lots of things and they create all sorts of mischief under certain conditions. But it's not just wages. The level of income in Australia, which has always been high, sets all of these things, wages, salaries, uh, management fees, what rents people expect to get, what profit rates business people expect to receive. So the whole framework of costs in Australia is much higher uh, than in most other countries. So that gives you price. Prices are simply a summation of that. So if you've got high incomes, then you're going to have high prices, all things being equal. So we're always expensive. That's the first thing. The second thing is our market's small and geographically fragmented by our peripheral settlement patterns, uh, which means that you each each 
urban market is not very large. Uh, the distances are large between them, and so the cost of transportation are high. So it was very hard to get economies of scale under, under those conditions. So we were, we, capital substitution was difficult. And the third thing is we were good, but we were not the best. The, be, the best people in the world in manufacturing are the sort of Northwestern Europeans, really, at the time, though the Germans and the Swiss and the Scandinavians, and followed by the Japanese. They were generally better at all of these things than we were. We tended to be a bit derivative. Our design aesthetics were seldom as good. Our engineering was was cut competent, but not. But you know, I'd, I'd say if you know about playing the piano, uh, we were like uh, people who could play Rachmaninoff's Number Three. We knew what the little black dots were. We could put our notes on the right keys, but you wouldn't pay to listen to us. We were not concert great pianists, and that's that's sort of what we were like in manufacturing. Those are three things. Costs of labour, scale problems, and skill problems. Those are the three structural issues. And how would you solve them? Well, you'd solve them by reducing excessive competition, which was always a feature of the Australian market. You'd get too many firms carving up subscale markets between themselves, three aircraft factories, up to seven uh, automotive produced at one time. I remember a company once we did some work for making hospital beds, and there were about eight competitors, and none of them could, could tool up or do the job properly. That was a feature of Australia. You needed to resolve that, and you needed really diligent work in quality and design and technology and productivity work at the enterprise level, sustained really over decades uh, to really make a difference to that. We never did that very well. And I guess, you know, we're now, we've slipped from almost 30% of uh, GDP from manufacturing down to below 6%, uh, below that of nations like Greece. What's now required to reinvigorate Australian manufacturing uh, so that employment and taxes are lowered and our standard of living and sovereignty can be improved? Well, the standard way you do that, you've got to be right. If you're going to make something, there's going to be someone in the world better at it than you. Uh, that's just a fact of life, and it really has been since the Industrial Revolution. The first movers, which was Britain in the Industrial Revolution, had an advantage over all of the others. Everyone else who tried to catch up were all disadvantaged, and so they had to use restrictive measures. If you look at the rise of the United States manufacturing system, which was fought over bitterly in the US between northeastern uh, uh, mercantile interests and uh, southern uh, plantation agriculture as the Confederate became the Confederacy against the manufacturers, which were the northern states there. That was a fought out political uh, struggle between those that wanted uh, the three things needed to get industry. That was protection. You had to protect uh, your emergent firms against better imports by raising the price of imports, i.e. through tariffs and customs duties or restrictions of some sort. That was the first thing you had to do. They, they developed the national banking systems too to fund and develop uh, local businesses. The state took a, uh, a, an interest in, uh, in uh, developing these firms and you need to own them yourself. I mean, they're the three things. You've got to regulate imports. You've got to support emerging industries with state activity and you've got to ensure that you maintain ownership and sovereignty of those industries here or you're always going to get all these sub-goal activities and these sojourners that are in here for the moment but never really put down roots and never really are committed to building industries for the country. They're the three things you've got to do and, and until the national governments wake up to that and, and agree to do those things and do them better now than they did them last time, uh, you're never going to get anywhere. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, let's hope there's, from the, the wake-up call that... Um, COVID-19 has presented in terms of um, supply chains 
you know, from, from imports being interrupted yeah. and um, just the general, um, you know, disaster that is, that is unfolding in terms of our unemployment rate, uh, something is definitely needed and, and manufacturing is, is that which can um, increase the employment rate. So let's hope that governments are, um, you know, looking at, at ways of reinvigorating manufacturing and, and yeah. uh, embracing some of the, um, the ways in which they can do that rather than being ideologically or opposed on ideological grounds. I hope so. I mean, and indeed, the ideology is a very important important point you finished with there. We've we've the the problem in Australia is, is the places under the sway of sort of sort of liberal economic ideology that uh, that absolutely infests the public service in, in in Canberra for understandable reasons. You've got to think uh, Canberra's like a big university town. You know, it's sort of away from everything, and it doesn't really have uh, much practical knowledge of how the world works outside of its own its own orbit and so it always falls for these sorts of grand theoretical strategies you know for, for free market economics is really just like marxism it's a sort of a doctrinaire idea that you can reduce the world to a few simple nostrums and if you attend to those like a, a puppeteer pulling on a couple of strings just tweaking this and tweaking that everything will work out well you know economists think productivity is an issue. They see the firm as a sort of black box. It's a mysterious thing. They don't really know what goes on inside it. But they think if you've got perfect competition and everyone and it's a price taker, they don't know the shape of the demand curve for the market and they all produce to marginal revenue equals marginal cost. They'll maximise profits and efficiency will be maximised. All this sort of stuff. Look, it's a load of baloney that belongs in universities and 19th century English textbooks and Adam Smith and Ricardo and Malthus and all these sorts of you know, liberal economists of the early 19th century. It is a load of rubbish, and yet it absolutely dominates policy in this country, uh, dominates the ideology of the major parties, dominates our, our decision-making structures in Canberra. And you've really got to put the sword to that nonsense and start getting some people who put the national interest first instead of this silly, empty dogma. Yeah. Yes, absolutely agree, Craig. Well, thank you for, for um, joining me today and uh, our listeners and uh, look forward to, to future chats uh, with you in the future. So thank you, Craig. Great pleasure, Chris. Thanks.